1: This episode of 12-pack radio is made possible by Nextiva, the official communications partner of the Pac-12 and the best business phone service as chosen by U.S. News and World Report. Nextiva helps companies all over Pac-12 countries stay connected with customers and coworkers using one easy-to-use app. Get Nextiva for your business and get business phone service, video conferencing, team chat, call reporting, and more, all for a fraction of what you would pay for those services separately. Make great calls every day. Visit nextiva.com. Forward slash 12 pack to get started. That's n e x t i v a dot com slash 12 pack to get started. Oh,
0: South Kakalaka! Don't you dare be sour! Clap for your world famous two time champs and feel the power!
2: It's a new game. Yes, it is!
0: For 12 pack radio, get excited. Y'all.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to 12-Pack Radio, your podcast source for Pac-12 football news, the home of the beta Rank college football statistical model, and your home for Pac-12 gambling advice with William Hills, Max Meyer. I'm Brian Conger. I am so freaking excited for this show. Um, We've been teasing this a little bit about having some new episodes and and just uh, bringing new people onto this podcast to uh, look at college football through a different prism, and we're doing that today with a with a and we haven't actually named the show yet we're just gonna call it the scheme show for right now um but basically what we've wanted to do is, is on the, the main 12-pack radio show, we talk a lot about advanced metrics. We talk a lot about gambling lines and spots and, and just like different things to, to keep a lookout for. And we do cover scheme uh, to some extent on the show. But one of the things that we really liked was we, we had Doug, or, or if you've seen him on Twitter, or on YouTube, at Burke 18 uh, as one of our guests. And we did a show that broke down the, the run and shoot at Washington State. And just really, really liked the way that that show turned out. And the way we found Doug was uh, from a lot of YouTube videos and his Patreon that he's been doing that basically is going through the Pac-12 and breaking down Scheme. And and Rob and I behind the scenes were like, man, if only there was somebody out there that would break down Scheme um, on YouTube. And like, lo and behold, like (laughs) Doug just fell, fell from, uh, fell from the heavens onto this earth to do that thing. And so uh, we kind of connected with him and wanted to do a show that really focuses on what are the X's and O's and what should we be looking at when we come to college football, Um, just a, a little bit of throat clearing here. I think this adds a lot of value, uh, not just in how we watch the game, but like if you're a gambler, it really identifies significant mismatches that you'll see throughout the year. Um, maybe a team's scheme isn't isn't really good up the middle, and like and all of a sudden you have oh I don't know uh, a team like Cal that has a really good running back that that can just you know bounce off of bodies and get those extra three yards. Um, those types of things I think are really really important when you're taking a look at which games that you want to place a wager on. Um, and, and another thing is like I don't think I don't think. Scheme necessarily um, mean success. You can have a great scheme um, and bad players, or you can have a great scheme and throw four interceptions in a game. So there is uh, some variance, obviously, to college football. It's what makes college football, I think, the best sport in the world. Um, but I do think that Scheme puts your team, um, if you have a good uh, plan, uh, your players in the best position to succeed. Um, so we have two guests on the show, that, and both that really look into film. The first is uh, Doug. You can find him on Twitter, again, at Burke18. The second is Andrew um, over at the Oregon, our friends in Eugene. You can find him at QB11SD. And I found Andrew, actually, just Twitter is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful place most of the time and sometimes a terrible place. But Andrew is part of the wonderful place. Um, we like just really responding to the podcast and kind of highlighting some stuff. And I was like, man, this guy really knows what he's talking about. So we reached out to him and said, Hey, you want to talk um, some scheme on the show? And he happily obliged. So, um, so Doug, how are you?
2: Welcome to the show. Uh, what, what do we have to look forward to here? I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, We've got Andrew here who follows the Pacific Northwest teams. He's a big um, follower of the Oregon Ducks and a little bit of Washington as well. So today we're going to look at Oregon on both sides of the ball. We're going to be looking into their upcoming matchup against Stanford and maybe looking ahead a little bit more into some of their later games. And then we're going to close out today by talking a little bit about the Cal-Washington matchup coming up, a rematch of a really weird game from last year. Um, Cal's also got a new offensive coordinator, and so we're going to look at what that new play-calling philosophy uh, might bring to that game that wasn't there last year. So, I've been having a lot of fun over this offseason, over last season, watching the Oregon defense. And something that's so exciting about them from a scheme standpoint is that they do a lot of different things. They don't always line up in the same way. They're not always going to give you the same looks. And in fact, as I've looked around the internet and seen what people said about this defense, I've seen people call it a 3 4 defense. I've seen people call it a 4 2 defense with four down linemen. Um, and so, I guess my first question is how should we classify Oregon's defense? How should we um, be thinking about the Personnel and the kind of stuff that they run, and why is it so hard to pin down exactly what they are?
0: Yeah, I think the best way to classify it is just a 3 3 5 hybrid or a 3 4 hybrid. Uh, You have three down linemen almost at all times, uh, with one of those guys being very interchangeable. So, the way you look at it is the two interior guys are always going to be very similar. They're going to be the big defensive tackles, long guys. Um, And then when they when they shift, it's usually by changing out the edge players. So if they want to go to a more heavy traditional three, four package, uh, three down linemen, four linebackers against like a Stanford or a Washington, they're going to substitute that end player or bump him out to an outside linebacker and bring in another big body to stack up against the run. Uh, They they have a lot of uh, flexibility also due to the nickel position. Uh, which is the fifth defensive back that they'll sometimes sub for a nose tackle and go to more of a four-man front. Uh, So it really just depends on the personnel grouping, who they're playing, and what personnel grouping they're seeing uh, opposite of them.
1: Hey, quick question on that front. Um, One of the things that I I, – obviously Oregon's incredibly deep, right? This is going to be a top-10 defense in the country. um, They've been recruiting just incredibly well in the Pac-12. Do other teams – you know are they able to throw multiple looks is this something that's unique to Oregon or um, or do you see other defenses in the in the conference um, have an ability to throw different really different bases at, at people um, over and over and over again?
0: yeah I mean I'm a duck fan I'm a little bit of a homer I think it's a little bit different I think Oregon has a little bit more personnel flexibility because of the recruiting that they've been doing uh, the body types that they've been bringing. Uh, there's really not much of a defensive line inventory out West in recruiting. You kind of have to hit those gems uh, or else you end up with a lot of the same body types. Those six foot to six two, 300 pound guys that the typical pluggers you kind of see across the Pac-12 defensive lines, Oregon, because of the brand and the recruiting under Cristobal, have been able to go outside of that footprint and find the longer, twitchier bodies and, and kind of bolster that front seven, giving them a little bit more flexibility. But I don't think it's necessarily personnel restrictive uh because last year oregon was running with some guys that were of that shorter uh, more stocky build it just changed probably how they were deployed uh and maybe limited the multiplicity a little bit against certain teams and personnel groupings that they saw offensively Uh, but the the big thing the the big thing is um you're changing those edge players the edge players are the are the ones that have to be the most um scheme flexible they have to be the best athletes they've got to be big enough to, to stack the run as either a defensive end or even maybe play as a stack linebacker in the run game depending on what front you're in
2: yeah and i would say you know talking about other defenses that are multiple but maybe don't have the same personnel advantages that oregon does um recently we have seen a team like washington state play this kind of hybrid defense that you could classify in a couple of different ways um arizona's defense has done some similar things arizona state's 335 did some similar things um but for arizona and washington state especially where they don't have those kind of big guys that andrews talking about um a lot of what they're having to do ends up being through stemming and stunting and getting into different They don't have that ability to necessarily substitute into all of those different packages in the same way that Oregon would so Oregon's got this really great ability to really match up their personnel with whatever they're facing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and the nice thing that they have now too is because of the recruiting now this year more so than last year or the year before. Well, this is year two of this game anyway, is they have an inventory where they've got some guys that can be those a gap run controllers. What we're talking about with that is the a gap or the two gaps to the left and right of the center. Um, where you want big bodies that can play two-gap if you need to stack things up. A two-gap meaning if I'm head up on the center, I need to control the A-gap to my left and to the right as opposed to in a more penetrating single-gap front, I would only have responsibility for one of those gaps and either a linebacker or another defensive lineman would be picking up the gap adjacent to me on the other side. Um, So they have that body type, but they also have the long-penetrating body type, which gives them even more flexibility on top of just the alignment setup, but also the gap setup and how they decide to play against the given team nice
2: now that we understand a little bit about how this system works um and about that multiplicity that oregon has and the way they're able to jump into different looks who are some players that really make that multiplicity go who are the people specifically that we should be looking out for um as we're watching this multiple um and avalos defense
0: yeah. So uh, before we go into that, I want to add one more thing to the end of kind of what we were just talking about. You you had talked about stemming um, and stemming would be think of it like a, like the offense lines up and they do a shift and two tight ends move from one side to the other. Uh, the stem is just the shift of the defensive front. So we're lined up in one look and linebacker claps or makes a call and all of a sudden the entire defense is shifting over like one full gap or two full gaps and you have a linebacker stepping up or stepping back to shift the strength of the front so when you talk about stemming it's that movement that you see that gets a lot of false start penalties Uh, I know for a fact that Oregon tracks those and it's something that they brought in from Washington State in that Alex Grinch defense when they hired the linebacker coach Ken Wilson Uh, last year I can't remember if this is the exact correct number but I believe they got 17 free Fall starts off that pre-snap movement, and it's something that they they take a lot of pride in, and that they really they they coach for.
2: Awesome. Um, Oregon starting off the season uh, with two very different offensive opponents. We've seen that they like to do a bunch of different things and run a lot of different personnel groupings. Um, and in week one, they've got Stanford pro-style offense, a lot of multiple tight end sets, a lot of bigger sets. And then in week two, they're going to move on and they're going to face the run and shoot at Washington State, much more of a spread team with a lot of different uh, wide receivers on the field that are going to try to stretch them out from sideline to sideline. Um, so within this Oregon system, are there any looks that we're going to see consistently from the ducks that we're going to see against any kind of offense. Um, And um, or is this going to be something that changes more from game plan to game plan?
0: Yeah. So there's going to be some consistency. The main thing that you're going to see a lot of from a personnel standpoint is that nickel group. You're taking out either a defensive lineman and or a linebacker, and you're bringing in that third safety to be your nickel, your nickel defender, your fifth defensive back. You're going to see that against Stanford and against, uh, wazoo the big difference is is who's going to come out in those games so against a team like stanford that has a heavy uh, power gap scheme oriented offense you're going to be subbing out a linebacker and but bringing in an additional big body so in oregon's like base nickel package you're going to have cave thibodeau and mace funa as the two edge players and then you're going to have two interior defensive linemen uh, jordan scott Brandon Dorlis or Austin follow You There's a couple others, Popo, Amave. Uh, those guys are gonna kinda rotate in on those interior spots against a team like Stanford, where they're gonna run some twelve and eleven personnel. Uh, Personnel groupings the way that that goes is the first number is the amount of running backs second number is tight ends So if it's 11 personnel, you're gonna have one back one tight end three receivers Uh, Against Stanford. They're traditionally a 12 personnel base team Which means they play a lot of two tight sets which with their history of tight ends over the last decade makes unbelievable amounts of sense, so um, They could run the ball a lot out of that But you still need to be able to cover those guys downfield So what Oregon will do is they will bump Cave on Thibodeau out to the edge bring in another big box to stack up those tackles, those big offensive linemen. And then the uh, other outside edge player will be that nickel player who can either run with a tight end, hopefully set the edge in the run game, be a force defender, or uh, drop into coverage. So uh, that's, that's kind of how they're going to approach that. And the only thing that really changes is they're going to go a lot lighter on the front when they play against a team like Washington State with a, with a, who's going to be primarily a vertical passing game.
1: Hey, real real quick question on that, because I'm just curious about the tight ends at Stanford, right? Because like you mentioned, Stanford has done a really good job developing tight ends that putting in the NFL. And then you have Scooter Harrington. <laughs> and it's possible that he's <laughs> able to make the jump. And I really do hope he does, because I love those Stanford teams where you have um, just those tight ends that are really, really difficult to cover, particularly if you're a team that hasn't recruited um, the athletes that are able to, to bring those types of players down. Scooter Harrington hasn't quite hit that peak yet, and it's possible that he does. But, but they have freshmen behind him, as well so I mean like and there, I guess that we could live in a world where like Scooter Harrington is awesome and they have a freshman tight end that's awesome too but if they don't have that personnel Andrew what what does does Oregon adjust to that like do they still bring in a, another big body to like to be able absolutely. to absolutely okay all right just here, just yeah curious. so
0: I mean it's really just kind of depends on personnel grouping so like again I, I'm speaking more in the historical sense about Stanford and their personnel their personnel grouping this year I wouldn't be surprised in my opinion, if I'm a coordinator, I'm not I don't get paid millions of dollars to do that. But with looking at the amount of receiver talent they have, I would be playing a lot of 10 and maybe some 11 because yeah. I don't know that they're going to be able to find two tight ends that really pose enough questions to, to merit that package. Um, I would like to see them play a lot more spread out, a lot, a lot more ten personnel. Get four, three, four receivers on the field. In which case, if you're Oregon, the way that you're going to play them defensively completely changes. Now you're going to play them more like you'd play your standard spread team from a front standpoint. You're going to you're going to be a little bit lighter. On the edges, you're going to want to get more speed on the field. So it's uh, it's going to be a chess match. And that's the best part of the Andy Avalos defense is that one week to the next, it will look like a completely different defense with completely different personnel, which is amplified by the talent that they've been able to bring in because they literally can bring in a completely different group of players um, to, to get some more speed on the field or to go go with the elephant package to stop the run.
2: Ugh, it's and As we talk ab- it's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, As we talk about these changes that are happening, you know, when we talk about Stanford trying to maximize their own personnel advantages by maybe going a little bit more spread if they don't have that tight end personnel, can we flip that and talk about Oregon's personnel as they get into and out of all these different packages? Is there anything that they run better or a little bit worse than anything else? Are there particularly kinds of offenses and formations that are going to be able to exploit the way that the Ducks are going to react to those sets?
0: Yeah, well, the biggest question mark is going to be that nickel position. I know uh, there's a lot of hoopla made of the opt-outs uh, for the NFL this year. Thomas Graham, one of the starting corners. Uh, Javon Holland and Brady Breeze. Um, like Hifliday, I think, said on the Oregon podcast that you guys just released, Brady Breeze was a really nice right place, right time player. I don't think he was this like physically imposing guy. Um, kind of make the play guy uh, he, he made the plays that were there and was very effective and efficient from that standpoint uh, but the big guy to replace is Javon Holland the nickel and uh, they have a, fre- uh, a sophomore who was a freshman last year who played primarily in mop-up duty by the name of Jamal Hill he's uh, from Georgia he's one. he's 210 pounds-ish and uh, he was a ten seven guy in high school so he can really run but it remains to be seen if he's the fluid cover guy that, that Holland was and really kind of Gave Oregon a lot of this flexibility. I know there's been a lot of rave reviews about him, but if there's a question and if there's a place that you're going to attack week one, I would be playing a lot of eleven personnel and I'd be throwing as much different stuff as that at that nickel position as possible. But I don't think lining up in twelve personnel and trying to run at him is the right idea because physically, you're just playing into his best instinctive toolkit. Hey,
1: th- yeah. th- this might be a stupid question. Um, like, you, like, let's say you want to pick on on um, Hill and And you yeah. want to throw different wide receivers at hill. is there um is there a way to to uh, like, and I know like on the offense, you can line up, you know, said receiver, you know, on hill if, if like they're in man. Um, is there a way to switch out if you're on defense to like to try, to try to hide? Like let, let's pre- let's pretend Hill is way worse than than he is, and like in real life, let's just pretend like he's a, a huge liability. Would Oregon be able to like hide a cornerback or a nickelback, uh, or or is is that really it just kind of is what it is? If if you line up a mismatch on him
0: you can try you could try to play more base packages bring in the sam linebacker for oregon you'd bring in a guy like adrian jackson who's a, a linebacker who was a track star in college he's 6'3 235 pounds and can really run uh, he missed last year with an acl injury but when i saw him last spring um at one of the oregon close practices i was at he was giving panay sewell the most trouble and pass rush of any of the guys there give it that was I think Kayvon's third practice in pads at Oregon, um, but they they would just probably switch to bring on a faster linebacker. Um, the the problem is is that you have to have a fifth defensive back, so whether it's a corner, a big safety. Uh, Oregon likes to have another safety in there because if you're going to be up around the box, if they're going to leave you on the field against those heavier personnels, you have to be able to set the edge. You have to be able to shed and get rid of blocks and you have to be able to tackle in space. And so like having a little five, nine slot corner, like historically was played in nickel back about 10 years ago, isn't going to cut it because they're asked to be a more multifaceted player. Hmm. Okay, cool.
2: As we talk about all these differences in these young players, something that I'm thinking about is when you're first coming in and getting your first playing time in this defense, um, how hard is it to adapt to all of this multiplicity? Are you worried about the fact that Oregon's got to replace some people with this turnover? um, Are you worried about that causing some problems in the mental side of the
0: game? Well, the nice thing about the turnover is that Oregon isn't relying on true freshmen unless a true freshman just stands out. Like the reports coming out right now is that Noah Sewell, the little brother of Panay, is going to start at Mike Linebacker. Like he, They had other linebackers with game experience who knew the scheme. Sounds like he's just better than they are, and so he's going to play. Um, for instance, at corner, you're replacing Thomas Graham with Mike Hill Wright, who played almost the same amount of snaps last year and likely was the best corner Um, so luckily they're not replacing with anybody who they're not being forced. They're not in a position where they're, we have to play a true freshman here, whether they're ready or not. Uh, they're mostly replacing with guys that will be in their second year in the scheme as well. So, uh, luckily that's not a necessarily a problem that they're running into.
2: And, you know, I asked that question because I think it kind of comes to mind naturally. But honestly, as I watched the tape from last year, I was amazed at how well Oregon's back seven covered and matched up against all the different things that offenses were trying to throw at them. Um, It didn't necessarily always look like they were playing their first year in a very complicated scheme. And I think that that's a credit uh, to the position coaches in that back seven for sure.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's two things to that. One, if you ask the coaches, I know internally the thing that they were most critical of themselves last year was the back seven play and the mm. amount of explosive plays that they gave up in the passing game. Uh, there, you're not going to see them play like Washington, which I know we're going to get to later on when we talk about the Cal game play that that cloud safety coverage where they got two guys 15 yards off the ball so Mm -hmm. it's they're they're gonna be they're not trying to just bend but don't break and keep everything in front but i know that's something that they really wanted to improve on going into year two was the downfield coverage um specifically late in games because they gave up some big plays that cost them um down the stretch last year so i know that's something that they wanted to work on
2: great um Well, I think that that about brings this segment to the end. I know that we could keep talking about
0: this forever, but we've got plenty other things to
2: talk about. So at that point, I think it might be time for us to take an ad break. Yeah, let's do it.
1: I know that one of the things that we've done on this show for the last couple of years was really try to grow and bring on new voices and like and go weekly and record in the off season. And one of the things that we were really trying to do was get to a point where we can have um, an annual sponsor. And uh, we were able to do that this year through partnering with Nextiva and um, and and. We're gonna have a surprise guest doing these mid rolls, so so just get really excited for that. Like, and if you listen to this podcast long enough, you'll know why uh, why I'm so excited about this. But that's that is next week. Um, so one of the things I wanted to highlight because when we were talking with next Stephen and we we're able to meet with the team, um, I really was trying to dig into like what is the what is like. Why, why would they partner with the Pac-12? And like, what are they able to do? And what do they bring? Um, and, and one of the things that I looked at was their YouTube page. And one of the things that was really, really interesting is they have all these uh, like vignettes and clips of their actual customers. And one of them was uh, the Children's Museum of Phoenix. <laughs> and uh, obviously in the middle of a pandemic, running a museum, kind of a problem, right? Like, how do you how are you able to communicate? And how are you, like, you have people that are in the office and out of the office. And um, just to be able to hear some of those testimonials on like what they were able to do in terms of saving money and also being able to um, run their organization and do it in a way that was uh, really seamless in the middle of a pandemic was pretty awesome. So um, if you haven't been able to check out Nextiva, if you're looking for um, a communications software like that does everything for you and does it in a way that's really easy, everything's talking to each other, and and you like the show uh, you can definitely support us by checking them out Uh, again it's nextiva.com forward slash 12 pack n-e-x-t-i-v-a forward slash 12 pack and uh and next week we're going to have our our awesome spokesperson uh talk to you about what's going on so very excited about that stay tuned uh one more message and then we'll be back
2: i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason
0: kelly from bloomberg this is the deal
2: All right. Welcome back, everybody. In our last segment, we saw a matchup that was um, a little bit of a rematch from last year. We saw Oregon's defense versus David Shaw's offense. We got a little bit of insight into how last year's game might tell us what's going to happen on Saturday when they meet again. The other side of the ball is a little bit more of a mystery. We've got a new offensive coordinator in Eugene in the form of Jill Moorhead. Um, And so I guess to start us off, um, what kind of a switch is this going to be at offense for Oregon? Um, Their former offensive coordinator was Marcus Arroyo, who's now moved on to a head coaching job. Um, What was Arroyo trying to do last year and how is Moorhead's offense going to be different?
0: Yeah, I think uh, the best place to start is with what Joe Moorhead does and what he is. Uh, They're a multi-tempo spread offense, so it's not the blur like you saw under Chip Kelly. It's going to be something where they can go fast when they want to, but they still want to be able to run that four-minute offense at the end of the game to close it out. Um, So it's a multi-tempo. It's a true spread. It's completely numbers dictated, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense based on the RPO elements, Uh, Joe Moorhead being kind of one of the grandfathers of the RPO. So you're going to see a lot of zone read a lot of RPO. It's like a modified West coast passing game, a lot more vertical stuff thrown in there, especially in the play action game. Um, And then regarding last year, it's kind of tough to say what the difference is. I know uh, Joe Moorhead's been extremely adaptable over his career. I know Hithloday has done extensive research on him and spoke about it a little bit. But depending on where he's been, it's been something completely different uh, depending on the personnel group that they had. So uh, he's liked to be balanced. At His best offenses have been balanced at – more at uh, Fordham and Penn State, uh, but at Mississippi State with a guy like Nick Fitzgerald, who can't throw it but can run really well, they they found a way to make it work with a one-dimensional scheme. So I'm, I'm interested to see what they decide to do. Uh, contrasting to Marcus Arroyo, last year's offense seemed to be kind of a scrapbook of things. They implemented the RPO for the first time last year. Uh, it was all first level reads meaning they were just re- reading either a nickel or a linebacker that was uh, at the number two defender outside the box. So first player outside the box between the uh, defensive end and the corner, that's the guy that they were reading. This was a way of kind of keeping Justin upright and uh, throwing and trying to keep that box that uh, that box picture uh, numbers in place. Um, meaning, with, with a spread offense, the idea is, is that you can spread them out and then you can get yourself ideal numbers either in the back half in the passing game or up front in the front seven in the run game. Uh, the way that it was taught to me, and the best way I can think of it as a fan is if you see two high safeties as a as a fan looking at the game, two, two high safeties, you're likely going to have a numbers advantage in the box, um, assuming that you're in an 11 personnel look. So how can you isolate and make it? an advantage so you have to bring the quarterback into this either as a runner or a threat to pass so you read a player give him hesitation hold him out of the run play and all of a sudden now you have uh, a numbers advantage at the point of attack in the run game so um, that's that was what Oregon kind of did last year although they were pretty stubborn running into boxes that were stacked against them it's kind of hard to fault them it worked most of the time Um, but I think that we're going to see a lot less of that a lot more balance and a lot more numbers dictated play calling
1: Hey, like looking back just a little bit, because um, Oregon's offense certainly improved this past year over the year before. Um, and, and when you take a look at it from an advanced stats perspective, I think they were thirty sixth in Bader Rank. I have to take a look at that. They were like in the mid thirties to mid forties in that in that range, which was better than the previous year. What did what did they do better um, between two thousand and eighteen and two thousand and nineteen that was able to get them uh, forward to a point where they were going to the Rose Bowl?
0: Yeah, I think the main thing, well, the defense got a lot better. Uh, We already talked about that. Uh, But the big thing that they added was the RPO. Uh, They were not really wanting to run Justin the year before. I mean, he has had two injuries in his career. He broke his leg when he was a junior in high school. And then he had that collarbone injury uh, in 2018. And we saw how the wheels fell off without him. So they, they wanted to keep him upright. And the way that they did that was they incorporated the RPO so that they could still run the ball into those heavier boxes that they saw. Um, receiver talent hasn't been a strength for Oregon over the last four years, kind of towards the tail end of the Helfer era, leading into Taggart and early years of crystal ball. And so, uh, leaning on that offensive line, I think the main difference. And the only difference really schematically was they just added in that kind of the first adaptation of the Oregon RPO passing game.
2: Nice. Could we maybe dive into the RPO a little bit more, especially for listeners who might not be incredibly familiar with the concept? Like, what does that mean? What kinds of things, what kinds of options does the quarterback have um, on the plays that, say, Joe Moorhead is going to run? Um, uh, what, how, how are they able to kind of
0: take advantage of what the defense is doing with these plays? Yeah. So the way that Oregon teaches it is, uh, well, I think first thing to understand is that I see a lot of times, especially on Twitter, fans of, are they, they put the RPO and the zone read in the same stack. Like they're the same thing. They're fundamentally different, but they accomplish a similar idea. So the idea of the zone read is we're not going to block the end man of the line of scrimmage. Okay. That's the quarterback's guy. He's going to hold that guy there so that we can take that extra offensive lineman and get a numbers advantage on the play side. So the idea with the RPO is, is we're now we're going to block that guy, but instead of taking that numbers advantage at the first level, we're going to do it at the second or third level, Oregon exclusively did it at the second level last year. And so now the quarterback, instead of reading that end man, snap comes they're, they're in the, the mesh point of the handoff, and they're staring down either a linebacker, a nickel defender, or a deep safety. And based on that player's leverage and reaction to the play action, they're either going to pull the ball out, throw it into the spot that he vacated to a receiver that's running a route there, or they're going to just hand the ball off. And so for Oregon's offense, the way they teach it now, it's either a zone read on basically every running play, or it, they're going to tag it, which is what they call um, for most offenses. They call an RPO a tag, which is so. If we're for instance, let's say we're running outside zone to the left, we're going to tag a slant on the F receiver, which is the slot. So that now the quarterback knows the offensive line knows we're just we're blocking standard outside zone we're accounting for that end man on a scrimmage the guy that we're not accounting for at any point in this run play is that backside nickelback who we're going to be reading and replacing with a throw to keep numbers honest in the box
2: so these RPO plays, I mean, what you're describing, it's it's really awesome because it kind of allows any run play to potentially turn into a quick little play-action pass, in a sense, depending on what the defense does. If that nickelback's going to cheat into the box and try to, try to shut down the run, then the quarterback has the option on every play to pull that ball and throw it out there. Really a valuable tool in their toolkits. Um, something that happened in the Pac-12 championship game with Utah that was really commented on um, last year was— You know, you mentioned that Oregon's running these RPOs so that they don't have to have so that they didn't have to have Herbert keeping the ball and running it. That changed a little bit in the Pac-12 championship game. Um, Does Oregon have a quarterback who is going to be able to use that mobility to get that kind of advantage that we saw Oregon pull out toward the end of the season there? Or are they going to be less of a zone read team and more of a team that's looking to either hand off or throw the ball?
0: yeah uh they do they've got two guys uh tyler shuck who is the presumed starter he's been getting the majority of the reps if not all the reps since last spring but the ones um isn't a really good athlete uh he's not uh robert griffin the third or anything of that nature but he's a good athlete he can keep you honest on the run and then anthony brown the boston college transfer is also a good athlete so um they i think they're going to have a really good mix of of options there i think that you're going to see the zone read probably eight to ten times a game i think you're going to see the rpo eight to ten times a game so you add that in with the actual straight up run game the play action pass the just your standard drop back pass you end up with a pretty good mix uh, also throwing in the screen and bubble game so um i i think it's going to be pretty fully dimensional with the with the personnel that they have available there
2: Nice. Um, so we've talked about the quarterback position a little bit. What about the other people um, that are on the field? What kinds of formations did Oregon favor last year? Who were they putting on the field most of the time? And is there any difference there between what maybe Arroyo was trying to do and what Morehead's going to do? Are they going to be more spread, less spread? What are we looking at here?
0: I think it's going to be more of a true spread. Uh, there were times last year when Oregon went into a shell. They came out in 12 personnel. The two tight ends, one back, and they just hammered the ball into eight, nine-man boxes for quarters mm-hmm. at a time. And really, they were based on I know beta ranks model. They were pretty efficient doing that. Um, but now I think we're going to see a lot more 11 personnel. The receiver talent is A, healthy, but They've also done a good job recruiting, uh, bringing in guys that can help at that position. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be more 11 personnel. I know that that's the preferred personnel for this offensive coordinator, um, and they have a good group of tight ends that can that can be um, fully dimensional as both pass catchers and blockers. So I think you're going to see a lot more uh, of of a true spread offense this year than you saw last year.
2: Something that's been big on Oregon blogs and message boards over. I think the last couple of years has been the move under Arroyo to more of a pistol backfield. So this is where the quarterback is lined up, you know, as if he's in the shotgun and the running back is lined up directly behind him, as opposed to a classic shotgun set where the running back is offset kind of next to the quarterback to one side um, or the other. Um, could we talk a little bit about why the pistol is something that people are so interested in? How is it different from the shotgun? Um, and is Joe Moorhead going to keep this kind of organ interest? In the pistol going
0: yeah so last year oregon was about two-thirds pistol to one-third offset back offset back being back just in your standard shotgun look to the offset one side or the other um the the reason that oregon made that switch was to be more balanced formationally so when you have the back offset there's only so many pathings in the run game that you can give that running back and most of them go to one side of the offensive line so the the way that Oregon teaches it and explains it is we don't want to give you the answers to the test before we even – We even give you the test, right? So they're going to have that running back in the dot like a traditional pro style directly behind the quarterback, which opens up both sides of the formation and also gives you a little bit different pathing on your downhill running game. So I think you're going to see a nice mix there. Both Joe Moorhead implemented the pistol at both Penn State and Mississippi State, more so at Mississippi State. Um, But it's going to always be a part of the Oregon offense. I know that Jim Mastro, the running back coach, was at Nevada when it was invented and was a part of that process. And um, I think that it's going to be probably maybe closer to 50-50, but still a big part of things, which there's been a lot of hate, especially on Oregon, in the Oregon blog sphere. Uh, Most of it's been completely irrational. They're blaming it for problems in the run game. Typically it was mostly numbers issues. Oregon saw a lot of single high safety looks, a lot of eight and nine man boxes, and really just ran into it regardless. So.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of great stuff about the pistol and kind of making it hard to know which way the running back's going to go. Are there any downsides to putting the running back directly behind the quarterback um, as opposed to offset in the shotgun, for example, like in the running back passing game? Does that uh, change in position impact anything in terms of what you can do as a spread team that's looking to get a lot of different options uh, out into the passing game?
0: Not necessarily. I mean, you could always shift that back down to an offset for pass protection. Uh, they did that a lot last year, actually. In third and long, you'd be starting the pistol, and then uh, based on whatever look the defense was given, uh, you'd bring the back down to one side or the other uh, based on the on the on the protection call. So, uh, I don't think it's limiting in the passing game. Again, it's it's you're talking about a difference of two, three yards maximum. It's mostly uh, just how you kind of can cover pre-snap what's going on um in terms of potential pathing for the back the other nice thing about it is that you get a traditional back to the defense play action game where the quarterback can really give a good fake um as opposed to the kind of like half mesh that you see sometimes from spread teams
2: it's kind of staying on the topic of the running back something that joe moore had like to do with for example saquon barkley send him out on a wheel route um, send him down the sidelines against a linebacker and create that personnel mismatch for huge gains and a lot of touched. Well, you know a, a number of touchdowns. Um, does Oregon have a running back that they can use in that multifaceted way, not just to run the ball but also to to catch it coming out of the
0: backfield? Yeah, they've got a couple of them. Uh, C.J. Verdell has been a good pass catcher. I don't, he's not uh, Joe Mixon but he can he can catch the ball out of the backfield. I think the one that you saw that they tried to implement in the Rose Bowl was Sean Dollars, who I know has had a really good offseason. Um, I think he's going to be one that you see coming out of the backfield a lot um, as, a, as a route runner. And also uh, tr- uh, Troy Dye's little brother, Travis Dye. Uh, those are kind of your three more third down back types. Um, but really, they, they're not, with the depth that they have at running back this year, everybody's kind of going to do everything. I don't think that they're going to substitute on third down and kind of show their hands. So uh, it's going to be a pretty good mix of back in and protection and back out in the passing game.
2: So as we kind of move forward with this new offense and we head into week one, looking at the Stanford game, um, is there anything that you're going to be looking for as someone who follows Oregon a lot to kind of look for indicators of where this offense is going to be going and how successful it might be able to be? Is there any kind of change that you're looking for, um, you know, maybe relative to last season that might be especially informative about the upcoming year.
0: Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they kind of ease into it with the vertical passing game and the, the more uh, intricate RPO, especially with the abbreviated off season. Uh, and the other thing is going to be personalized. You got five new starters on the offensive line. So mm-hmm. are they just going to come out and run the ball and try to set that identity and get that group gelled? Or are they going to come out and play a real balanced offensive attack, kind of like we've seen from uh, Joe Moorhead at his other stops and press the ball vertically, which I think is probably the biggest difference is uh, Joe Moorhead traditionally is a very aggressive vertical passer uh, as a play caller. They, they really try to push the ball and get trunk chunk plays, which is um, for Oregon fans is something that they're really excited about. I know I'm excited about it after what's been a pretty non-explosive passing game the last couple of years.
2: And one more thing that just jumped to mind, talking about the offensive line, something that I know Jim Moorhead has liked to do in the past. Um, we've talked about the zone read and the RPO and those elements and how they tie into the run game. Um, but something that Moorhead's also done, especially in the red zone, at least in the film that I've watched, is used some pulling linemen, um, not just a zone run game, but get those big bodies out in front of the ball carrier and especially out in front of the quarterback, um, Uh, Is that something that you've seen on tape, and is that something that you would expect to continue in Eugene, and is that any different from what the Ducks have been doing before?
0: Yeah, so Oregon the last couple years, this is a good point that you bring up, has been basically almost exclusively a zone-running team. So zone-blocking up front. Now, they do zone-block a little bit different than... I mean, I know you're you're a Cal fan, particularly with Coach yeah. Greatwood. I know I'm pretty familiar with him, too. When a reach block on the zone game is when you're trying to get out and get your body around the defender. Sometimes that defender has a head start on you because they're playing off your shoulder. Um, Oregon doesn't teach the reach block the same way. Their zone game is... These are your steps. This is your aiming point with your hat. You're going to go through this guy, and he's going to go whatever direction you take him. So it's less of a finesse, traditional zone game. Um, The pathing is the same as as traditional zone. It's just a little bit different style in coaching the blocking up front uh, because the body types that Coach Cristobal loves to get are generally aircraft carriers. So um, it's a lot easier for an aircraft carrier to go in a straight line than to float around something.
2: (laughs) I love that. That that's a great way to put it. <laughs> or, yeah, or so, you can
0: add something else? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, like you said, Joe Moorhead um, was pro- was uh, more willing to use gap schemes um, uh, in his last couple stops, and I think that that's something that you see gap schemes being plays like counter. Um, I know Oregon ran some counter, uh, Mm -hmm. but but Oregon's bread and butter last year was split zone, which is just your zone running game, but with a tight end coming behind the formation and taking out that end man on the opposite side of the play side. So um, I think think we're going to see um, see more power, see more gaps games involved. Um, I know that a reason that Oregon didn't do it as much is because the group that they had, that big group of seniors last year, just struggled with it when they tried to install it and they weren't very proficient at it. And so Oregon was like, well, all right, we're really good at running zones, so we're just going to keep doing it. And uh, so, yeah, I'll be really interested to see with a brand new group personnel wise a new offensive coordinator how much more we get out of the run game from a from a scheme schematic difference standpoint whether it be counter tray counter power just your g lead typical stuff where you get a little bit more movement than oregon's been doing over the last couple of years as
1: i was gonna say if, if you're like taking a look at the stanford game um you're talking about being able to uh, just be flexible like stanford stunk <laughs> <laughs> defending the pass last year, like they were really bad. I, I know, I know. Paulson Adebo is back there. He's gone now. Um, I like Dwayne Aquina as the secondary's coach, but like they were really bad. And if you're Joe Moorhead. Right, I think you kind of have to take some shots early. It'd be interesting to see if those connect. So if you're watching that Stanford game, um, and and man, if Oregon's able to to get out ahead in the passing game right away, you know, then then you can rely on that running game where Stanford isn't as strong up the middle as they used to be, and you can just see those like five yard chunks and those five yard chunks. So anyway, like just something to keep in mind with when we're looking at this Stanford game, because again, that line's 12, and I think. Oregon's going to be able to cover if they can get those big shots early. But um, that remains to be. Yeah.
0: Safe. Yeah. It really comes down to how they're executing. I mean, it's just, it's hard to say you have a brand new quarterback who in garbage time has been fantastic, but that's all we've seen him in. And then you have five new offensive linemen. Yeah. I would assume that they're going to try to run the ball, but if they come out and are just, they're they're running the offense and they're executing at a high level and you see a good balance, of zone read, and RPO, and screen and downfield pass, I, I think that the tools and the, and the skill talent is there to take advantage of what was a pretty suspect uh, Stanford secondary last year. Um, but I will say this, Stanford's front seven gave Oregon by far the best game of any front seven in the Pac-12 last year. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep in mind, too, because they, they, they do a lot of different things, talking about a multiple front defense. Uh, Stanford, they, they weren't great all the time, but they were pretty healthy. It was one of the only games that they were really healthy for up front last year. Um, they were doing all kinds of different things to confuse the Oregon offense. So uh, I'll be really interested to see the chess match in the, trench, the, the trenches with a new offensive line and quarterback.
2: All right. I think that gives us a lot of good things to look out for. I'm really looking forward to finally getting a chance to watch some Pac-12 football on Saturday. Um, But with that said, it might be time to move on to another uh, ad break.
1: Yes, because this podcast is also brought to you by My Bookie. Between the NFL and college ball, there's no shortage of games to watch. With thousands of lines available and all your favorite sports and events, you can turn your game day into payday with My Bookie, a longtime sponsor of 12 Pack Radio. If you're the type of guy that likes to put a little money on the favorites, throw down a little sleazy parlayzy, get a better payout. Not only do parlays make meaningless games exciting, but more importantly, they give you the chance to turn ordinary bets into a real moneymaker. don't forget about the dogs. Don't ever forget about the dogs at 12 Pack Radio. The thing about the NFL is there are never dogs on Sunday. And I would argue in the, in the Pac-12, <laughs> there's never a dog really. On Saturday, every team has a chance to win and so do you. Game spreads, championship futures, player prop bets. It's never too late to get in on the action and start turning your sports knowledge into actual cash in your wallet. Sign up at MyBookie and when you do, use our promo code OVERTIME, O-V-E-R-T-I-M-E, to claim a deposit matched dollar for dollar all the way up to a thousand dollars it's a bonus designed to give you a little help a little a little nudge here and a head start for your winning season that's promo code overtime to claim your bonus when you make your deposit stacked ufc cards major sports and more sign up to today and get your winning season rolling at my bookie all
2: right welcome back everybody we're here for our third and final segment of the day um you know, our guest here, Andrew, is uh, follows the Oregon Ducks a lot, but it's not just the Ducks. He's also looking at their rivals to the north up in Seattle. And so today we're going to uh, bring in his expertise about the defense run by Jimmy Lake with the Washington Huskies. Um, so, Andrew, uh, what can you tell us about the Husky defense um, heading into 2020?
0: Well, they've been a DB factory for the last five or six years since Jimmy Lake and crew showed up, and that's not going to change this year. It's going to be the strength of their defense from a personnel standpoint, and they really play around that strength, and the defense is designed to uh, amplify that personnel strength. So we're going to see a lot of two high safeties in the classic Washington 15 yard depth, maybe off the screen, depending on the angles in the stadium down there in Berkeley. <laughs> um, and the 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 interesting thing to watch and to monitor as this game goes on against what I'm assuming to be a more pro style offense is: are they going to buzz that one of those safeties down to get more bodies in the box and to defend the run game, or are they going to be staying in that too high and trying to keep everything in front of them? So uh, I think that that's a big thing to watch. And then they they play. Dime and nickel so dime we talked about nickel earlier being a five DB look dime it's six so uh, they hadn't they haven't had the best personnel since Ben Burkirvan left at inside linebacker and last year the way that they did they um, kind of tried to hide that was they brought Elijah Molden and Miles Bryant onto the field at the same time in their dime look. Bryant's gone. Do they play more nickel? Do they still run the dime? That'll be another interesting thing to monitor um, as this game progresses Uh, But uh, up front you're gonna have two interior big guys on the defensive line uh, And then you're gonna have the two edge players and the two inside linebackers and really that's their base look It's the only look you really see out of them. They're not the most multiple fronts So uh, I think that's that's a good place to leave off as you start with the Cal offense
2: Yeah, and and we're going to get into the Cal offense in a little bit more detail um, coming up, but just as kind of a preview, you know, Cal is going to more of a traditional kind of old school uh, pro style offense um, with a fullback in the game, a couple of tight ends. By all indications, we're going to see a lot more of that from the Bears. Not something that we've seen a ton around the Pac-12 in recent years, actually. So this is going to be kind of an interesting change. If Cal's going to come out and run that kind of offense, um, do you anticipate that Washington's going to stay in that two interior linemen, two outside line, that kind of nickel package? Um, or do they have something bigger they can get into?
0: Well, I know last year against Oregon, they were in that their base nickel package for all of about seven plays of the first, first drive and decide that that wasn't going to be it. And they transitioned to a bear front, which we saw used again. Uh, I'll explain what a bear front is, but against Utah and Colorado later in the season. So a bear front is when you have, A body on the defensive line or an outside linebacker that is covering every single offensive lineman So if you got you have someone head up on the center You've got someone either shaded or head up on both guards and then you've got somebody on a shade or head up on both tackles So instead of being able to get those double teams in their zone running game or some of those gap schemes Uh, it makes it a little bit more difficult just because of the sheer number of bodies that are up around the line of scrimmage
2: Awesome. Um and just a little bit more about the Washington defense before getting a ton into Cal. You know, in the last in last year's game, really weird game, uh, there was a monster rain delay that caused the game to end late at night after, after a huge delay. We're probably not going to get anything that weird again. But, you know, looking for takeaways and for things that we might be able to take moving forward into this game on Saturday, something that Cal did struggle with is their passing game was really ineffective and you mentioned the two deep safeties and things like that i mean can we just say a little bit more about washington's coverage and i mean what what is it that they do in the passing game that makes it so hard to sneak
0: someone behind those defensive backs that you're talking about well first of all they've got a lot of talent uh freshman trent mcduffie was either the best or the second best corner the in the pac-12 last year as a true freshman and elijah molden returning in the nickel is probably right up in the top three or four defensive backs in the conference as well. So they've got a lot of talent, a lot of experience and a lot of depth back there. And they're really well coached and technically sound. And because of the style of that kind of bend, but don't break too high defense that they play, they, they, they trust their techniques and play pretty tight coverage because they know if they get beat that there's going to be someone over the top more times than not. So uh, they play pretty aggressive in coverage, both zone and man. They don't, the last year they didn't play as much man in years past, but as in years past, but uh, it's it's just tough to throw on them because they, they really they they're very very patient. You don't see them, and I think this is the reason that they've been so effective against the Mike Leach passing game is they they'll let you nickel and dime them all the way down the field, but they're counting on the fact that you are going to get impatient yourself and screw up, and then they're going to strike on you. And that's what that's what's made them so effective the last couple of years.
2: Yeah, I'm looking at those wa- those Apple Cup games against Washington State. I mean, they're just rushing, you know, playing kind of a three-man defensive line, rushing three, dropping eight guys into coverage and just kind of zoning off. And as you say, just uh, f- feeling free to give up anything that's in that five-yard range but not giving up much uh, farther down the field.
1: Um, I, I would add, too, they have the talent to do that, just to add on to what Andrew yeah. was saying. Because, like, Arizona tried to do that. I think uh, <laughs> you've seen some other teams go against the air raid <laughs> oh, yeah. and try to do the same thing and just get lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, so certainly <laughs> speaks to the talent that's in Seattle. Hey, I, I had a quick question for you, Andrew. It's it's the the short stuff up the middle, like you mentioned. I think the the inside linebackers, and we'll get more into this, but I'm more just speaking from like a passing attack. So you have really excellent corners, and you got a lot of them, and then you have the two high safeties. D- does that leave Washington susceptible to stuff kind of in the middle of that field, particularly with the linebackers that they field right now?
0: typically that hasn't been a problem right when we go back to 2016 2017 2018 they had really they had they always had like one dominant inside run defender too like you had a vita vita Vea uh, going back to danny shelton they had greg Gaines. uh there's one and there's another one that i'm forgetting in there they've been able to stop the run with even numbers they'll play you six on six or five on five and they would stop the run they haven't been able to do that as much and the inside linebackers have been a little bit athlete, less athletic dropping into those underneath zones so it's been uh, it's been a little bit different especially last year and I'll be interested to see how that's developed in the offseason Speaking of those linebackers, um,
2: I now I do want to get into the cow offense a little bit because we've got a new offensive coordinator. Uh, this is Bill Musgrave coming over after a year off from coordinating in the NFL uh, for the Denver Broncos for a couple of years, for the Oakland Raiders before then, and other stops along the way. And I alluded to this earlier, but he's bringing, you know, by all accounts, looking at the depth chart, looking at the film of what he's done in the past. He's going to bring a much more two-back heavy offense. He's really going to use his fullback as a lead blocker, move him around the formation, um, and and try to keep Washington's defense off balance, not really knowing where that blocking back is going. He's also probably going to bring a lot of different tight ends into the game. And something that really jumps out at me as I watch Musgrave's offense is, you know, there, there's probably a greater diversity of run schemes, um, then you're going to see from just about any team in the Pac-12. I mean, Stanford over the years has been pretty diverse. They've run a lot of different things. Um, But what Musgrave is bringing is an offense that has a lot of different ways to attack the defense on the ground. And so I guess one question that I have for you is how well is Washington's personnel or their scheme or the combination of the two, how uh, how well are they equipped to take on this kind of offense, which they might not have seen too much in the past?
0: Well, last year... Uh, looking at them, especially with Tryon and Anzuriki, who are, uh, probably just butchered his last name, both have opted out for the draft. They were really stout up front. They had they were really strong on both edges. The other edge being Ryan Bowman, um, whose brother was also a, a defensive lineman there. But th- they're just very technically sound, strong edge players that set the edge. I Leatu Latu st- uh, played a lot for them last year on the edge. He was really really strong there, especially in run defense set again setting that clean edge which is really important in the in the kind of front that they play because you want to keep things kind of straddled inside where those safeties can come downhill in a straight line and be forced players in the run game because they're playing so deep. It takes a while if, if things break to the outside. It's pretty difficult. So uh, I think the, the the biggest thing is it one has the personnel at inside linebacker improved because last year they had two seniors and Connor Wennington and Kyler Manu. Neither of them were very explosive. Both of them didn't show to be super instinctive, and it ended up to be the bane of the defense. They 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 struggled to stop the run at times against even some teams that weren't great because they were just constantly out of position. So, um, uh, the, the walk on who's now on scholarship Olafocio and I think it's Jackson sermon that they, they're listing as the starter going into the season. One, do those guys have better eye discipline? Do they flow to the ball, but with better instinct and two, are they more explosive and can they close? Because that's going to be what decides this game. In my opinion is, can they stop the interior run without having to sell out and actually playing a little bit more honestly on the outside?
2: Um, I love what you're saying about the linebackers here. I think that that's really fascinating. Um, could we maybe walk through a snap almost? You're, you're one of these linebackers stepping into this role. Um, you're lining up against a team that maybe pulls some linemen, uh, maybe inserts a fullback at different points in the defense. I mean, what are the things that you have to do as an inside linebacker in order to play effectively against this kind of offense?
0: Well, I know the thing that a lot of young linebackers get wrong is they read the ball. They watch the ball. They try to follow Mm -hmm. the ball. And what ends up happening is, is because you're hesitating and waiting for the ball to tell you where it's going, you end up in a whole bunch of garbage. And now you have to sift your way through it. And some guys are so explosive and they're so instinctive and they're so good at getting through that trash, they can get away with it. Problem is, is that the guys that UW are going to have to play this year haven't shown to have that ability. So what they need to do is they need to read through the guard to the fullback because that's what's going to take you to the ball. You need to be able to to those guards. They don't lie. If they're pulling, you, you got to follow them. You got to take them because they're gonna. Your keys are going to take you to the ball a lot faster than the ball is because the ball lies.
2: Absolutely. And that's especially true with Musgrave's offense, where he's going to do different kinds of things with the back's path based on where he's aligned. Um, he's going to be able to get him attacking kind of different points in a way that's really hard to track, kind of like what we were talking about with the pistol earlier. Um, uh, I think if you're watching that kind of backfield action, that, that could potentially be a problem. So that might yes. tell us a little... So go not ahead. To,
0: not to interrupt, but and no, and that's ahead. the thing is it's it's not... It's not on the majority of plays. Like it's very easy to be eye disciplined and to play that the right way for sixty percent of the snaps. It's on those forty percent of the snaps, the snaps right after you just got gashed. Are you gonna Are you gonna go try to make a play and kind of go off on your own, or are you gonna play with that same eye discipline that you were playing with two quarters ago? And that's where I think that's really where where either Cowell is going to be able to kind of separate in this game, or Washington is going to be able to sit on the run game.
2: And another part of that, I mean, we've talked about the inside linebackers and what they've got in front of them. Um, Kind of flipping over to the other side of the ball and talking about personnel. Um, Cal is probably going to be in a lot of multiple tight end sets this year. Uh, That's not necessarily going to be a change from last year. Now they're going to insert a fullback as even an additional blocker into some of these sets. Um, Cal's got... A number of guys coming back at tight end. uh they've got a guy named colin moore jake Tonjes. Tonjes, for example a really good pass catching tight end um but one of the ways that cal ran into trouble last year in Bo baldwin's offense was getting their tight ends matched up against maybe an outside linebacker or against a defensive end um and so i'm wondering you know, even even if Washington might be a little bit inexperienced at the inside linebacker spot, what are their defensive linemen looking like, and how have they stood up, uh, and how might we think that they would stand up to um, a kind of multiple tight end set like that?
0: Yeah, I'm not going to try to pronounce the names. Uh, I, I struggle <laughs> greatly with the Polynesian names, but they've got, I mean, probably three to four guys in the interior, especially in those two inside spots that are going to play anywhere from the center to the outside shade of the guard that are they're they're big guys they're really strong um they're going to have some experience there between um josiah bronson and i'll just call him Thule, um <laughs> which i apologize to his family uh, but they, they've got they've got plenty of guys and plenty of size they've recruited very well at getting that specific body type um so that i have i have no question that they're going to be able to sit on those a gaps the question's um, become our, how disruptive are they going to be? Because last year Levi on was unbelievably uh, disruptive as a penetrator and a pass rusher from the inside. And the, the guys that are playing at that position have yet to show that skill Um, in addition to just being guys that can really use that, that size and that leverage to stack things up in the middle. Something that Cal's going to do as a part of this pro style offense,
2: this kind of NFL system is, um, you know, the, the play action passing game. We've talked about eye discipline in the run game, following those guards in the fullback. Um, how, um, do, do we know anything about how Washington's maybe linebackers or safeties are going to stand up to the kind of run fakes and play action passing attack and kind of rollouts that, um, that I think I'm expecting
0: to see from Bill Musgrave? Well the two teams that really did a lot Of that stuff last year against them were Boise State in the bowl game which they Mm -hmm. completely shut Down outside of a couple plays early In the game and Oregon Out of the pistol where you get that true Back to the back to the defense Play action fake and they Mm -hmm. really did a Great job in both of those games standing up I mean even if the safety Takes a couple false steps when they're at 15 Yards deep they're still not out of position (laughs) So (laughs) the, the, the problem Is is that getting over the top of Those guys isn't easy and I think you can, you can speak on this. I don't know what kind of additions with freshmen they've made, but Cal's biggest personnel disadvantage offensively is probably the speed at wide receiver. So Mm -hmm. uh, do they have the guys, and this is a question for you, do they have the guys to get over the top of that deep safety and actually make a play in the vertical passing
2: game? I mean, we definitely still need to see that. Um, you know, when you look at the depth chart, it's a lot of the same guys that were back last year. And so that kind of take the top off of the defense speed uh, isn't necessarily a feature of it. We've got maybe a little bit more technical route running, in some cases, a little bit more length with a guy like Makai Polk, who's six foot three. Um, but, uh, you know, Cal's got a lot of a lot of kind of prototypical outside receivers who are over six feet tall. But when you're talking about that speed, you um, uh, as things have developed up to this point, you know we'll need, we'll need to see if someone emerges in that role. But I think that the guys who are slated to get the most playing time in week one are not necessarily that, uh, that, that type of wide receiver. Um, and also, with Musgrave's passing game, I mean, just going back and looking at the film, you know, there's a lot of kind of Underneath passing game and things like that. Um, so I think that that is kind of the orientation of the passing game to begin with. You know, you mentioned that Washington's happy uh, to let teams kind of nickel and dime you. I think to an extent, Cal with their passing game is going to try to rely on Chase Garbers, who's now a junior, you know, uh, an upperclassman with with some experience behind him now. Um, I think that they might try to lean on him a little bit to move the ball down the field that way and be patient. Uh, um, and take what the defense gives them, um, but um, I think you know it's TBD if they're going to see uh, a big-time deep threat emerge um, in one of those wide receiver spots or maybe in the slot. Well, Doug, so.
1: Well, Doug, I, I have a, a question for you on personnel also because if Cal scores 14 points through the air god bless him i mean like r- really like i mean and i you mentioned chase garbers having some struggles in that game uh previously yep. when, when there was the delay i i totally agree yep. with you but i thought later as that game went along and that's a tough crowd it's a weird time yeah. i really liked the way that he really stepped up and started to move the offense you could see that confidence like literally growing within him as the game was going on of course christopher brown was the story of that game but also <laughs> right. but also garbers oh, was, absolutely yeah you he know, was really really fun to to watch. I, I guess the question I have is: I think I'm going to assume that Washington's going to really put a cap on what the Bears are going to be able to do through the air, and I really think mm-hmm. the pressure is going to be on Cal's front on whether or not they can get a push. I know Christopher Brown's awesome. I know I think it's Dancy that's yeah. behind him. I, I apologize. I've done so many of these previews, I'm forgetting the second <laughs> the second back. But do they really have the um, the talent uh, on the offensive line? And there were some injuries and uh and in the in the tight end game uh, really to to make this uh cuz the the lines one and a half and i want to take i'm going to take washington but i'm just i'm just curious if cal has the horses up front to make a game of this in the run attack
2: and i guess something that i might say there is that cal returns a lot of players on the offensive line um and you know they they weren't the greatest offensive line last year so you can question how valuable that returning experience is but you know as we said christopher brown was the story of the game last year against washington um and so cal's kind of rolling in with with a lot of the same kind of guys who pulled that off um you know they um when you when you look at the run game and we talk about that kind of like linebacker eye discipline and people being in the right gaps and things like that that was that was a way that cal was able to start ripping off really several 20 plus yard runs in this game um and so I, I don't know that the offense. What, I mean, we'll need to see what the offensive line coach does and what kind of improvement comes out of that. Everything's always exciting in fall ball. Um, we'll need we'll need to see it on the field before we know if it's going to materialize and what that ne- what that additional experience is going to lead. Um, but what we saw last year is that when we start talking about these. These kind of linebacker concerns and and gap discipline and things like that. Um, your offensive line doesn't necessarily have to be the most dominant for you to be able to rip off some big runs. So it'll kind of be a battle between um, two units that might have their respective struggles.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I want to add a couple things to this conversation because, like you said, if you're going to score touchdowns on Washington. They're gonna make you be patient. I did a study yeah. last year I'm trying to I was trying to pull it up but the average touchdown drive against Washington was like 10 and a half plays it's crazy. Just, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of explosive drives against them and the teams that have like really kind of beat them bad the Ohio states and the Penn states, um, th- those were the teams that actually got the explosive plays. So the reason that they've been able to hold teams under 35 points is because how many teams in the Pac-12 can really consistently execute 10 to 15 play drives over and over again? Right. Not very many. And so with, with Cal, the the question is, is, is the offensive line good enough to beat what is It's like solid, at least if we're going on, on the objective tape that we can watch from last year. It's a solid returning group of defensive linemen, but it's not a particularly... Uh, explosive or disruptive group just from a penetration standpoint. So Mm -hmm. Cal brings back a group that's not super flashy, but they execute well and they do have one player who when healthy has been pretty flashy and will Craig Mm -hmm. at left tackle. So, it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting it's going to see we're going to see scheme wise um, a chess match obviously but we're also going to see which which group can rise to the occasion and out it's really going to be more of a position based technique game than it's going to be just like an LSU Alabama of last year we just have studs just getting after each other for four quarters because Washington has some really highly regarded players inside but none of them have shown to be particularly disruptive to this point not saying they're not great or very effective in the role that they play and cal has a group that's very very experienced from an nfl projection standpoint probably not the most talented ever but they mm-hmm. have played a ton of snaps as a group and, and definitely can execute well and, and get get things done
2: absolutely um and that's that's kind of a model on offense that cal's been looking for is that kind of you know not necessarily the most flashy at all times in terms of personnel, although there are some nice pieces that are coming in. But um, uh, being, you know, maintaining that kind of well-coached uh, disposition um, and and being able to operate with each other as a team—that's uh, that's, that's kind of how they're how they're going to
0: have to win for sure. Um, And and it can work. I mean, I watched Oregon, Steve Greatwood for 10 years, make it work with a bunch of 250 pound guys that all they could do was pin and pull. Like they, they, they would just, or pin and post. I mean, they just put their body in the way by lever by leverage and positioning. And they were, there was constantly 1,000-yard rushers, so it can be done without the top-line talent. I just want to make sure that that gets highlighted because I myself have been pretty hard on Cal this offseason in regards to, yeah, they return a bunch of guys, but the the talent ceiling is pretty low. That doesn't mean that they can't be very, very effective depending on the scheme.
1: Absolutely. All right, well let's end it here this is our first you know first episode so send us your thoughts be nice about it you know constructive criticism here you can uh, reach us at on Twitter at 12 pack radio one PAC radio um, you can reach Burke Ber- Burke where uh, uh, or Doug where, where can people reach you on Twitter
2: yeah Twitter just at Burke 18 CfB as in college football
1: and Andrew Andrew do you want your uh, your nomen, nomenclature out there out in the wild or yeah, sure. uh, what do you think about <laughs>
0: Husky fans, you can direct your hate at QB11SD (laughs) on Twitter. Um, hopefully, I did a decent job representing you guys. Uh, you guys have a great defense.
1: So. <laughs> I thought you were quite fair. Quite fair. Um, Yeah. Send us your thoughts. Like th- this is a show that we were really excited to do, and I think we really enjoyed recording. So there's a ton. Like we're, I mean, we're all going to be watching these games. Um, I think we can approach things uh, differently if if uh, if there's something that you want us to take a look at. So let us know what you thought. Uh, things that we can improve. Things that you'd like us to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, we still have one more show for you this week. It is the uh, uh Oregon and Utah preview with Hithliday, so keep a lookout for that. And then, of course, our flagship show, which will drop uh, every Monday, reviewing the previous week and previewing the upcoming week uh, with picks with Max Meyer and advanced stance with Rob Barron. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for coming on, and we will catch everybody next week.